everybody, welcome to Roll or Die episode 46. Today we have the amazing Sai Naji, father of Riker, I just found out. And uh, he is part of the landscape of, I guess, event organization in Melbourne, various styles. Uh, we'll probably go into that. But he's also just recently been on the podcast, the Absolutely Unnecessary Podcast with Simon Carson. And talked a lot about what was going on in the scene right now and for the future. Um, so I definitely recommend that you get over there and watch that. I think we want to try and go down some other some other avenues today. But Sai, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Kim, for having me. And I think you're actually one of our first uh, non-grappling guests. One of our our first uh, non-primarily grappling guests. I think we've had a, a wrestler or two on. Um, yeah, you do, you do dapple though in the, uh, promotion of jujitsu events. Yeah. Talk to us about those. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I just started doing judo, so I've done three classes. So I, I think I'm a grappler. He's a grappler. And I did wrestle for a lot of years. I did do jujitsu, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I do my main sort of connection to grappling at the moment is, um, the stuff we did uh, with Boa Super 8 and hopefully we'll do again in the future. Yeah. Um, but obviously the other side of my, the main part of my promotions are the Thai boxing, Muay Thai promotions, Rebellion and Roots and Road to Rebellion. Mm. Do you remember your first ever event? Like, was it, how did you fall into this? How did you get started? What was the kind of the catalyst, I guess, for creating, because one of the things, I mean, BOA is huge in the sense that it really professionalized us, you know, as a jiu-jitsu community, it really took, it, it was a whole different ball game for the kinds of shows that were put on previously. And I think um, it really speaks to the fact that it came from somewhere else, you know? Um, yeah. So, but going way back to the beginning, like when was your first event and what, and, and, and what caused it? Um, the first rebellion was, uh, December 11, 2011. Mm. Um, so I guess like I started in martial arts when I was uh, 12 years old or 13 years old, which is a lot of years ago. Mm. And um, like, I guess the romantic side of it is that like every, a lot of people my age, we got into martial arts because of Enter the Dragon mm. and all these people coming into the tournament and then like blood sport. And I know this stuff sounds cheesy, but Right. It's that tournament. It's got that that thing about it. Yeah. Um, and then from an early age, like we'd go, um, like I did first off, I did Taekwondo, which you just have these massive at the old glass house. I think it's called the entertainment center now, and there'd be thousands of kids and adults and stuff. But I used to go to a lot of the old kickboxing shows and things here, the Tarek Solak events. Ah, yeah. Um, the Christopher Cronos, like. Um, people think our shows are big. We used to go to, again, the glass house when I um, stand the man for Masaki Sataki, it was wow. 8,000 people or something like that. We, I was, I think 19 or 18 and sitting on the floor and it was just a big event. And um, then there was the crowning event, which was an eight man tournament. So I'd seen a lot of those. And then, you know, I think a lot of people would probably relate there's UFC fans, but then there's Pride FC fans. And I was a Pride FC fan where like that, that was my thing. Yeah. And I started watching UFC from like UFC number two, but I loved Pride and just, just the whole story around. And it's got, it's got like 
the way I think about it, it's got it had soul. Mm. Like it's not just fights and crowd. There, there's like there's something to it. Yeah. Um. And look, having trained like I used to train Muay Thai with Laos Tui when I was 16, 17, and then went back when I was uh, in my mid-teens after I'd kind of just gone and wrestled. Um, and I remember we had a couple of boys that fought, wanted to fight full tie with elbows and Laos saying there just isn't enough shows with full Muay Thai guys wanting to fight with elbows. And um, we started having tie boxing at our gym and I had two, three tie trainers and we'd go to shows and there'd be a couple of kickboxing fights, a boxing fight, a kid's padded fight, and, uh, but there was just never a specialist event. Mm. Um, and that sort of catalyst, the catalyst was the catalyst for me to go, okay, well, I'm going to do my own show. And the original idea was that it was just going to be like a, uh, just a regular local event where we just got 10 matchups, no glitz and glamour. And obviously that just completely went the other way since then. Wow. And was it, so was it designed for this, like when you first got into it, were you doing it for the competitors or were you doing it for the spectators? Like what was your, were you trying to make money out of it or were you trying to empower the sport? Uh, like I wanted to help the sport, um, but I just want, like I've been to events where it's really run well run for the fighters and it's for half the fighters, the fighters who are like the home people. Um, and then it kind of sucks for the fans. I've been to events which are just fan friendly and the matchups are like terrible. Yeah. So the goal was like, I want people to, if they fight on it, I want it to be prestigious for them. If they uh, get to go watch it, it's like a experience. And then if you've, as a gym owner, if you've got, or a trainer, if you've got fighters on it, I want it to be something special for you as well. Cause mm. um, the trainers like, Fighters and students obviously always are the center of attention in a lot of things, but they don't realize the sort of time and sacrifices that the trainers put into it. And, you know, we, we had shows where we'd have a guy fighting in the main event, it'd be like 2.30 in the morning and the fight hadn't even started or yeah. they, they put Wayne's at the wrong place. So you take someone into state and no one would pick you up at the airport or you'd stay at like, you know, we'd stay a couple of times in, country victoria we stayed at a hotel room above a pub and i'm like man these days i go to bed at 9 15 <laughs> so you know and it's like hearing the music it's like man i just i want people to feel special like yeah when you're an amateur you're an amateur but when you're a pro you, you gotta like we can't pay the people the sort of money that you think as a pro but i want people to feel special i want them to have a walk out i want the trainers not to feel like they're getting jib like it's a lot of trainers will just stop putting fighters in because it's just, you know, they rather just run their business than have to deal with traveling for shows and mm. fishing out of, out of their own money just to have someone fight. Yeah. It's a lot of effort, isn't it? In the background, like there's so much, like I've, I've seen you at your own events and there's just like, you are the linchpin and it's like, if you got sick or I don't know, whatever, it looks like these things would not actually run. You know what I mean? It looks like, and there's so much knowledge, there's so much insight and there's so much, in the moment choices and decisions that have to be made and tough calls and tough conversations to have these things are really hard to run is that your experience or am i just yeah like i think um you know when you start 
doing jiu-jitsu and you learn like the first time you look at it i remember the first time we ever went and did jiu-jitsu was at um i was 17 and it was uh at the shooting range in in essendon and it was a john will club and we went there and I, we were taekwondo guys yeah. and i remember watching the guys rolling and it literally looked like people just going four <laughs> classes. It, it is it's like well they're just doing nothing Four classes in, you go, okay, I understand this is a position. That's what that transition is. Yeah. And then over time, it makes sense. And it's the yeah. same with, you know, the things you do grappling. There's like the technique you learn, but the timing of it and the execution of it, that comes from doing it all the time. Mm. And I think doing, I think close to 50 events in the last 10 years, it's that trial and error. And some of that stuff, like, like everything, like what you guys do, like, it becomes second nature. Yeah. But yeah. you just got to be willing to suck eggs for a while to sort of improve it. Sure. What, what you were saying there about, you know, jiu-jitsu looking like chaos. Um, I'll be honest, like I'm a bit of a novice with Muay Thai, but to me it still seems like it's fairly self-explanatory for the casual observer in terms of um, going to and watch an event. How do you need – to do anything different in terms of running jiu-jitsu events, given that mm. it is pretty rule-centric and even for people that do jiu-jitsu, it can be a little bit confusing to watch. Do you... Well, we, we, we sort of have the same issue on with Muay Thai as well, um, Kim, because it's like, uh, like last, yesterday, uh, Canelo fought um, Callum Smith in boxing and there was a photo today and he's got this massive burst uh, muscle in his arm and Canelo was saying, I'm punching his arm so he couldn't encounter me with a left hook. Now, in Thai boxing, kicking someone in the arms is a way, it's a score, but it's also a way of stopping them from punching you. Mm. A lot of the people in the crowd that come and watch Thai boxing and people who even compete in it don't even understand that. So we still, like to this day, are having to educate people mm -hmm. about the rules of Muay Thai. So they go, oh, I, I threw... 500 kicks and 600 punches. It's like, yeah, but three of them landed and this guy threw 20 and 19 of them landed. Who do you think should win the fight? So we, we have that. I think what I found with Boa was actually the other way around where other than the last shamuzzle with some of the couple of the competitors not understanding the scoring, the people who come to jiu-jitsu are super uh, knowledgeable already. Mm. So we had um, my security guys that do all my events, they were like, these guys, these nerds, they're just sitting there. They don't cheer. They don't do anything. I'm like, they actually <laughs> understand exactly what's going on. So out of a, a jiu-jitsu crowd, 95% of the people would know what's going on. At yeah. a Thai boxing event, a lot of the people have come in because their mates fighting and they see the opponent sitting against the ropes, their mate keeping him against the ropes and they go, well, he won the fight. It's like, yeah, he was at the ropes, but he was kneeing him and kicking him and your mate was just getting battered and bruised. So yeah. I think the challenge with that I, I now saw at the last BOA, which is something I've got to really work on for the future ones, is getting one understandable, clear rule set. Mm. Because like I've been around jiu-jitsu a lot, but as a lot of times the referees and stuff want to remind me, I'm still a white belt, but I kind of make sure I read and understand the rules. But a lot of the fighters and stuff, they just assume and they show up and it's like, did you read this? Were you at the Wayne when I explained it? Were you, were you there? Did you yeah. ask a question? 
and they don't. And then because it's very, it's not like the ball either went through the goals or didn't go through the goals. There's that yeah. fine area. It's like, well, you know, then there's the, there's the, um, the controversy that comes with it. Hundred percent. In fact, I saw just a post the other day from a guy who was in a high-profile event and he's quite a high-profile BJJ competitor. And he was saying, "Had I known the rules before I entered, I wouldn't have entered." But that's I saw that the rules are always available. So, or usually, at least, or they should be. Actually, that's a good point. So, how do you make sure, like, as as a from a promotion perspective, yeah, is there any way that you've learned how to safe? As you said, you're going to go to work on it. But what do you plan to do to safeguard these sorts of things and make sure that people who are entering are really well set up? I, I think um, next time round, the rule set we agree on. Um, I think the the definitely the rule explanation can't be at the wanes or on the night. That yeah. should be a refresher. I think Tiago, the first couple, did a really good job of explaining it on the night, mm. um, but people still kind of like wandered off a little bit, even though they most of them had signed an agreement about what the rules were going to be. Yeah. At our show, uh, at the last show, I did it at the Wayne, and some of the people went away, but the referees hadn't really oh. carried on to it either. Mm. Um, and I, if you remember when. Um, uh, Pomaski and Stewart fought mm -hmm. and they did the guard pull in overtime. I was in the back talking to probably James Brasco about his shorts or something. And when they called me and I came back out, I didn't know if it was in the, I didn't know if it was in the main round or in the overtime. So they asked me something. I'm like, yeah, no, we've said that's not going to be a point, a point off. And then I realized I was in the overtime because I didn't know at what stage of the match that was and mm. the rules were different. And then that's why he was seeing him in the middle of the man and he was upset. I'm like, we were fairly clear about this the night before. Yeah. But he, I think at the time of the rules, he literally went to the bathrooms. Mm. But then the referees were a bit unsure too. So they're bringing up Google. I'm like, man, it's ne never going to be a good look to Google ADCC rules and show it to him. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, and, and they were right. Like they they, they made the right call. Yeah. Um, he misunderstood what was said at the Wayne because it was about regular time and overtime. So I think the next time around we need to do a more detailed rule set, send it in, get them to initial it, maybe do yeah. an explanation video and go, guys, this is where it's at. Yeah. Um, but also I think we just need to find the most like I've got one idea for a rule set, um, but it's something I'd want to talk to like uh, Tiago and um, you know Lockie and guys like that and say look does this make sense to you because yeah. I think it just needs to be one rule set that I think that uh, as a sort of more wrestling based guy I like the idea of like if you pull guard you lose a point it yeah. should be executed yeah. but other people aren't going to want that so it should be one rule set that's clear to follow mm. do you think it's appropriate to quiz them like to give them a google cute you know quiz with 50 questions on the fighters and so, and have them answer the, you know, the more controversial points and kind of test them. Is that kind of, is that an inappropriate kind of approach to show? Potentially, but I'll be really honest, like the jujitsu people that I've dealt with, they seem like quite intelligent, well-spoken. They understand things, they read things, but as the event promoter, I can have, the number one Thai boxer in the world fighting for a world title on my show. And when I speak to them, there isn't that I'm a black belt, you're a white belt. I can't even yeah. be bothered with this conversation. Yeah. Whereas 
with, and that's been one of the things I've never really liked about traditional martial arts since I was a kid, that belt hierarchy on the mat sort of carries onto everything as long as it's attached to it. Mm. And it gets quite dismissive. And it's like, listen, there's a reason why you need to stand over there for a professional show. There's a reason why you need to do this. Whereas it's like, and I don't know, like maybe I can get, you know, Lucky or Tiago, whoever does it to ask them that. But I think there's, there, there is a certain amount of like arrogance slash confidence that kind of stops I, that I can, stuff. Kim is exactly like that with me. She's black, I'm purple, and she just treats me like shit. I know, I don't, man. I don't even know why we're doing this podcast together, honestly. There needs to be another black belt sharing this role with me, honestly. It explains a lot, doesn't it? It really does. I actually, I totally do get it, though. Like, I do think that the, the high-level competitors as well, you know, you mix a high-level kind of someone who's trained a lot of something and you mix someone who's successful at competition, there's a certain amount of arrogance that comes with that sort of character, I think. Mm. Oh yeah, I, I, I understand. Yes, no, I mean we had we had Lockie on like two episodes ago. I don't think you could say he's probably one of the most successful yeah, competitors in Australian Jiu-Jitsu, but I don't think there's a whole lot of arrogance there. So ah. it does really vary person yeah. to person yeah, as well. Hundred percent. Yeah. 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 And uh, where do you see the future of Muay Thai promoting or promoting in general, given, you know, the way the world is now and uh, what 2021 brings? Like, what are your plans for next year? It's hard because I've got um, two tier of shows. So I've got Rebellion, which is sort of world-class top-line guys. And then we've got Roots, which is the novice professionals. So my plan for the next couple of shows, at least, is just to do Roots because I think, you know, it's going to be hard or impossible to bring overseas fighters in and even interstate. Like we could have had it. Let's say we'd had a show planned for next week and Sydney got closed. We could have lost our card. So that, that's going to be a big impact. I'm just talking to venues now for my first show at the end of February and, you know, capacity and stuff's going to be an issue. And, you know, a little bit of it's going to be compliance too, because, I'm sure there's a lot out everywhere, but there's a, probably a disproportionate amount of um, tinfoil hat people in the Muay Thai community who are probably going to like bulk at, uh, at regulations and stuff in. And I'm like, on a night where there's a show running, I don't actually care if you your, your YouTube research or not pr- agrees with it. It's just what we have to do to get it done. Yeah. And I don't want to have to get stuck too much into that. So those are the things we've got to um, really be considerate with it is uh, capacity and um, bringing people in. Because even if they come in and, you know, I've got friends who are part of fairly large international organizations and they're getting 20 fighters showing up into Singapore, going into quarantine and then 11 of them testing positive. So, mm-hmm. yeah, wow. Yeah. And what about streaming? Like, do you reckon that might be a bit more, given the capacity, like the crowd numbers might be limited? Are you going to look more into that sort of thing? Or what? Yeah. Look, I think um, I've probably been most consistent with streaming here with Rebellion and BOA. Um, the numbers, you know, the board sort of when the idea of fighting came about again, they said, look, you, you can do a show without a crowd and you can live stream it. So um obviously you'd get more but i to put it into context the biggest pay-per-view revenue i ever got out of a rebellion event was eight thousand dollars 
the guy in my main event alone cost fifteen thousand dollars just just for his fight, not his flights, not his opponent from overseas, mm. not anything else. So um, the revenue isn't quite there. I'm sure we'll get a lot more people because you know we can't fit a thousand people into a venue, but it's still with the amount of free stuff that's out there. It's questionable how much people will pay. I mean, we just subscribe to to the zone to get all the boxing stuff, and it's two ninety nine a month, yeah. and you're watching Canelo fight. So people will pay for a niche thing, but I don't think it's going to be at a point of well, we're going to get seventy thousand dollars worth of uh, pay per view, and that'll justify paying for a show. Mm. I mean, like Boa, I think over the first three did fairly decent uh, pay-per-view numbers, but still not even close to that. And then the last one where we had it with Flow Grappling, like it was like almost nothing what we got paid for it. So okay. um, yeah, it's a challenge. <clears throat> yeah. Flow yeah. Grappling I found really expensive as a subscription service. So I guess that's, you know, like so for me, I, I subscribe for it when I could see myself on it, <laughs> you know, because I was in, an, in a, you know, like a, an event, but the other than that, I wouldn't pay. So that's the thing. Like as a user, like I would pay. I always pay for events if my mates are in them. Um, mm. But I definitely understand that you know there's people who've got limited money to point and shoot at different things, and it's a real luxury to to subscribe to an event. Yeah, I mean, like I always buy all the Muay Thai show in Australia because I a I want to see what potential fighters are coming through. But B, it's just I'm not going to fly, and half the time if it's in Melbourne, I'm like I said, I'm asleep at nine o'clock. So it's kind of like a little way of like chucking in 30 bucks towards it. Yeah. Um, and like, I've got a UFC fight pass subscription and I think that's great. Like it's great value for money, mm. but um, I think we're still a while to go until we've got si like significant, significant yeah. money. And like the flow grappling thing for me was because I thought we'd give the show good exposure and potential sponsors. Um, but then you got to like, it's hard to measure out of how many eyes actually saw it. And yeah. would we be better off just having our own pay-per-view here? Yeah. yeah. I actually, on the, on the, sorry, Kim, I, um, <laughs> one more question on this. Well, while you were talking about UFC, I noticed um, that their fight pass at the moment has a fair bit of combat jujitsu and submission mm -hmm. only like underground stuff. Is that an area like combat jiu-jitsu? Is that something that's got your interest for events in the future? Because I do think that there's an interest in that. It's kind of like a bit of a crossover, or do you think it's not It's not in the kind of area that you want to explore? I think, um, like, I've got a plan to do an MMA show in June or July, mm -hmm. and I kind of want to keep them fairly pure. Like, yeah. I want to find – I want to do – want to get my head around boa a little bit better and we've got rebellion and then an mma show and potentially something with boxing mm. and i kind of want to keep them a bit separated yeah I, I, like a couple of combat jiu-jitsu stuff i've watched i can't i don't know part of me just goes if you want to like actually hit each other do MMA. Do MMA. yeah it's like yeah that's so true <laughs> yeah I, I don't like and i you know it's it's bad because Obviously, we modified the rules a bit, but I kind of just go, it would it, be nice for the sports to be able to stand on their own two legs and have a following. Mm. Like, be a jiu-jitsu event, be a pure Muay Thai. And that's why I kind of struggle with K1 kickboxing sometimes. I'm like, the rules are just 
show to show all the time changing and it's like mm. why can't we find that's one thing yeah yeah absolutely yeah i had to do a little bit of research um about you because as i said I, i'm pretty uh, a novice with muay thai um and so i asked one of my muay thai friends what sort of things i could ask you and um she told me that out the back of the rebellion roots you've got a poster that says always display beautiful muay thai yeah. And what, what does that mean to you? Um, so there's, it's a poster of Jordan Coe, who um, is a Scottish fighter. We brought out to Rebellion twice. And I met him those two times and spoke to him on Facebook a bunch of times. And that kid, when he, when he came out, like his walkouts alone, the venue went off. And when he fought, he just such a beautiful technician, like perfect style. Like he it's like his tie and just so amazing. And unfortunately uh, about three and a half years ago, he actually passed away making weight uh, for a fight in Thailand. And when I found out, I like, I, I literally landed in Bangkok to go and meet with Fairtex, one of my sponsors. Um, and I got off the plane and I turned my phone on and there was like 50 messages. And I remember standing at the, uh, at the um, customs and I thought, man, they're going to like take me for a strip search because I looked like I was about to fall over. Yeah. Um, and he passed away. So it, it's a little bit of a, a tribute to him because like uh, he just, the way he fought and the way he carried himself. And I think Thai boxing so much, not just about punching and kicking, but it's just about the, even the judges, they look at your composure and how relaxed you are and how balanced you are. And that's what I love about Muay Thai. It's like, it, it's, it's an art form. Like you, you, it's, it's a real brutal fight sport, but it's an art form. And there's so many intricate things about it. And I think Jordan just all around kind of captured that so much. And so from the first show after that, we've always had that picture of him coming out to the ring with uh, display beautiful Muay Thai. And then we've got an award that we hand out at every show in his honor. But yeah, I just um, like for, uh, for me, that's why I've got the roots show. It's, it's like, it's a reggae show. It's named after different Bob Marley songs and people come in to watch fights, but we're playing reggae and dance hall the whole time. And the vibe is so chilled. And I like, there's a lot of dodgy shit that goes on in fight sports. And I think it doesn't need to be that. And like, showing beautiful Muay Thai, listening to reggae, like having a nice atmosphere. I think mm. for me, it's important. I don't want to do it any other way. Beautiful. Cool. Wow. That's so intense. Beautiful. I can't believe it. Like, I guess that's altered your view of, um, or it had an, it must have had an impact on your view of cutting weight um, for, for martial arts. You know, what, yeah. where, where has that left you? I mean, now that you know someone personally who's passed away as a result. It, it's real funny, Anton. Like, the first time he came to the show, or the second time, the weight we'd agreed on, he'd asked for, and the other guy had come in well under. He, he, he was struggling to make it, and he was, like, messaging me, and I was, like, breaking his balls, like, joking around with him. Mm. And we'd already agreed that he was going to be half a kilo bigger, and I'm like, man, I don't know what he was doing to cut it. Mm -hmm. but um, I remember when I wrestled just at the, for the 2000 Olympic trials, we had a 52 kilo wrestler and this was the Australian titles and he would have won. This was the Oceania titles. He'd won the Australian title 
And he basically had one guy to beat at the Oceania. He would have gone to the Sydney Olympics. And this kid ended up missing weight by like 90 grams or something. And I always remember we were, I was 23, 24. We had him at the saunas in MSAC. Basically, he was almost past that. And we were like shaking him, trying to get there. And we were just, we were so scared of our coach that we thought if we go back there and we took him there and he missed weight and we all got screamed at in front of, everyone in wrestling in Australia and was like, it was so bad. But now after that happened with Jordan and all these shows that I've seen, we always joke about my wife and one of her friends came to the bowl, uh, Wayne's and I'm like, it's all these good looking Brazilian dudes. They cut a little bit of weight and they're sitting there having their problem. You go to a Muay Thai event or a boxing event and they look like crackheads, like drawn mm. out, like, and get on and it's like man this is most of these guys are gonna have 10 20 fights it's not the end of their lives and for a young kid 21 year old kid to die because of it yeah it's uh i, I always tell my wife i'm i'm like always on a thin line of being a fight sports promoter or being like a full-time campaigner to get everything banned like i, wow. I see yeah. i see the good part of it and then there's some of the other parts of that i watch i'm just like i, I get horrified like mismatches, bad referees that let fighters go too far. Oh, my God, yeah. The, the way people train in gyms sometimes after they've been knocked out, I'm like, man, these guys, this is like a sport. These guys aren't going to – who's going to make a career? And is it worth having a career where when you're 55, 60 years old, your brain damage? Like, so it's a fine line. Yeah, man, I totally understand how you would feel that way. Thank you for sharing that. That's like, I'm, I never, I never knew any of this, of course. That's why we do this show. But I just thank you for sharing all of this so openly because it really, there's a lot that goes on in the background of these sports and these arts and these events that people just wouldn't be aware of. They rock up, they either have a good time or they rock up and they compete and they go home. But there's so much, there's aftermath, there's real life ongoing impacts in families and whole communities as a result of, of some of these choices that coaches sometimes impose. Like, you were saying, so you were on a wrestling team, is that right? You well, when, when I, I wrestled in Victoria, so um, I, I got my ass kicked at the trials anyway, so my, I was a non-factor, but he was, he would have made it. But it's just the wrestling culture is how much weight you cut. Right. And I, I think back, at it, I think I used to walk around at 88 kilos and wrestle at 84. Mm-hmm. Realistically, I should have been like a 76 kilo guy. Yeah. But these guys used to cut so much weight and you know i see it i see it with muay thai and boxing and wrestling was notorious and then now with mma the stuff that happens with that Mm. and i think like one championship is trying to sort it out but the problem is like it's like drug testing fighters and gyms will always find a way around it because it's it's never going to happen to you but it's like man you know a young girl died cutting for an amateur muay thai fight in wa two years ago like 19 years old, 18 it's unnecessary. years old. It's just unnecessary, really. If everyone's not cutting weight, then it doesn't matter. You know, it's only if, like, if, if it was just stopped altogether, so everyone just competed at the weight they walk around on, then there'd be no reason at all to cut weight. So, yeah, it's become a, I think that's one of the, um, one of the bad parts of maybe MMA that's really brought into other fight sports is this whole fight camp thing where guys fight at, uh, 63 and a half kilos Muay Thai then for the next six months they're, they're walking around at 90 kilos and then they're, they're in camp and it's like well 
you know, how healthy is that? And how healthy is that? But then also like, you know, maybe Kim can say if this is right or not. I think like, especially with female athletes that fluctuate their weight up and down so oh, yeah. much and like getting to that low, super low body fat percentage and what it does to you hormonally and things. And it's like, you can put as many rules as you want. People will crack it, but it's, it's the education part of it. It's like, mm a lot of the coaches like we said before you're a, you're a black belt in jiu-jitsu you're a, a muay thai trainer and it doesn't mean doesn't mean you understand the effects yeah, 100 oh, for sure look most of the time as well with jiu-jitsu majority of jiu-jitsu events are amateur events so you're not even getting paid for it i mean i don't really understand why people put themselves through that just for the sake of winning a division where maybe they would have been at the bottom of the division below, you know, above if they hadn't cut the weight. So, yeah, as a female, it's very, very hard to cut weight to, yeah, with the, the hormonal factors and things like that in. So, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, I remember, like, I think the last Pampax I went in, I cut down to, is it 77 kilos? Or 76? Yeah. I cut down to that and I was, I think. sorry? 76, I think. Yeah. And I remember, like, you were supposed to weigh in. And then get on the mat and I weighed in at 9.30 and your match was supposed to be straight away. Mm. My first match was at like four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And then I went and I think I went and ate like $200 worth of sushi and water. I was like so blown up. I was like, did you need to have that weigh in at that time? Did you even need to cut for something? It was just bizarre. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people think it and, and we are running out of time, but I think, you know, a lot of people think it's like the battle that you have to win before the battle. It, it adds to the addiction of the whole sport like for me it does i remember the subculture being, of it they walk around the gym with their sweats on and oh, i'm cutting weight and yeah they do all that stuff and it's like you know we go away with our fighters or sometimes they come here and they make weight and then i watch them eat a giant bag of like chips and chocolate and coke and go out to dinner three pizzas i'm like you don't normally eat that yeah. you're gonna fight tomorrow what are you doing eating that now like <laughs> yeah Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, as Anton said, I think we are nearly out of time, but um, we want to thank you very much for uh, being on the show. As I said, you're the first uh, non-grappling person. Hopefully, he's not the last. He's we, a grappler. Oh, Come sorry. On. Come on, but you're known. I'm you're nothing. known for being a striking promoter. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, yeah. Uh, so, yeah look, I have thank a you so brand much. behind me, so. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely been on our list for a long, long time, Anton, yeah. and I've wanted to have you on. So, yeah, yeah. thank you so much. You're yeah. a busy man. Thanks for giving yeah. up your time. And a beautiful Lovely. man. Like, seriously, I don't just mean physically. I mean that <laughs> you, are, you are someone who is very authentic about the fact that you walk a fine line of being in, a, in, you know, in, in something that can cause harm as well as cause amazing growth for people. And I really love that about you, man. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. Cheers. Yeah, so thank you once again. We will aim to have this out the week of Christmas. So Merry Christmas to everyone, to all our listeners. Merry Christmas, guys. And um, hopefully we'll have some more kick-ass events in the new year with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Bye. Bye. Bye.